Welcome to Business Line's State of the Economy podcast, where you will find insight, analysis, and the story behind the numbers. Welcome to the Business Line State of Economy podcast. In this episode, we'll be exploring the major trends that shaped the startup ecosystem in May 2023. Last month witnessed a surprising drop in valuation of multiple unicorns by the private investors. We'll delve into the reasons behind these markdowns and their implications for the startup landscape. On a positive note, new exemptions in the angel tax provisions have brought relief to the foreign investors. We'll discuss how these exemptions will impact the investment climate. Joining us today, Arunatrajan, founder of Venture Intelligence, a private market intelligence platform, and Sadat Pai, co-founder 314 Capital and co-chair Regulatory Affairs Committee (IVCA). Welcome Arun and Sadat. Hi. To start off, Arun, can you please give us an overview of the startup funding activity in May and can you compare it the volume and deal sizes in April 2023 and May 2022? Sure. You know, we tracked about 53 VC type investments uh, worth about, you know, 7500 crore or less than a billion dollars in May 23. These figures are actually down 51% in volume terms and 44% by value terms when compared to May 22. Compared to the immediate previous month April 23 that is, you know the figures are actually up, you know, 15% by volume and significantly higher thanks to one large, you know, cross border investment. So from a sectoral perspective, I think the uh investments in the venture side of things are uh, dominated by b2b and you know within that enterprise software kind of investments you know we tracked as many as 22 investments this month as is may 23 versus 27 in the same time last year and like we've discussed earlier ai ml especially vertical focused ones as well as climate tech and ev within that you know are also doing well compared to may 22 having said that you know uh, the numbers don't compare well enough to even 22 let alone you know 2021 and it looks like it will take some time for various segments for example seed investments have been kind of doing well we recorded 25 such investments but even that it was compared to 53 in may 22 and series a and b deals are you know down to single digits actually so we are quite a ways from catching up with 22 even and it looks like you know things are going to be slow but you know we're looking at a month on month progress rather than anything else at this point uh, or also can you talk about the mna activity in the ecosystem now uh, are there any sector specific trends that you have noticed or Absolutely you know it is clearly a case at this point of stronger hands taking over and quite a bit of consolidation uh, however way you slice the uh, you know deals so for example we as we saw a bit earlier in the year in the case of lenscart and in this month purple the personal care a products unicorn the sovereign wealth fund adia came in strongly on to take some equity away from existing investors and then put in some primary capital on top of that so that's and then we saw a very interesting deal in the form of a specialist private equity secondary fund called foundation private equity come in and you know buy out three companies from carpedium capital that's more of a venture come growth equity fund you know from their earlier fund you know some of these funds hadn't taken probably money of the table in the go go time 
of 21, you know, and even early 22, now they are actually cashing out to kind of get that money off the table, so to speak. So that's on the venture funded startups. You know, in, we also saw, you know, very interesting deals by MindTickle, Apple, in terms of going out and acquiring companies in the valley. And, uh, and obviously there is far more kind of venture uh, funding winter in other geographies. You know, India is relatively far better off. And, you know, these companies are kind of taking that plunge clearly well-funded companies Apple is listed as well and they are taking the opportunity to go and consolidate you know even overseas so looking forward to seeing you know more of this uh, it is stronger hands taking over and which is a very good sign and a player like foundation private equity giving liquidity to VC funds clear sign of maturing of the startup VC ecosystem here uh, Arun, also, we saw multiple VC firms like Matrix and Rate, so closing new funds recently. Do you think the investor sentiment is improving now? Can we see more deals going ahead? Clearly, you know, there is a disconnect between the actual money flowing and, you know, the dry powder sitting with the VC firms. You know, we've seen tracked as much as $9 billion being raised, you know, by India-dedicated VC funds since uh, 2022 beginning. I'm sure this money is going to flow quite quickly to some of the deserving startups once the valuation, etc., you know, expectations get realigned. Matrix, $550 million, and then it follows, you know, funding from other Silicon Valley VC firms uh, starting with Sequoia, Lightspeed, Axel, you know, between 200 million, $2 billion among all of them, you know, just raised since the middle of last year, right? So, and obviously, you know, we have homegrown VC funds. 314 is a good example, $200 million fourth fund. Bloom Ventures, again, you know, $250 million fourth fund. These are domestic and led funds who also have some foreign money as well. And Shirate, like you mentioned, you know, they've raised a growth capital fund, $123 million, 1,000 crores plus. And we've seen venture debt funds, Stride Ventures raising their $200 million third fund. There's lots of money, lots of dry powder waiting for the right opportunity as we see it. So clearly, you know, a good sign of opportunities to be tapped going ahead. So that would you also like to weigh in uh, as a you know co-founder of a VC firm? Why is this there is this disconnect between, you know, lying dry powder and the number of investments we see around this time? Yeah, I think, I think that's actually a fantastic question. I think we're seeing a, we're seeing a mark dislocation between LPs LPs being bullish on India versus fund managers actually deciding to take the plunge itself. I think one of the reasons, there are actually several reasons for this. If I break it down into two broad categories, one I think is there's still, there's still a negative sentiment around whether this is actually the bottom or not, or whether, or whether valuations can actually end up softening a bit more, whether we can actually end up driving a bargain, such that nobody actually wants to, wants to actually catch a falling knife. We prefer the knife to actually fall, and when the rebound happens, to actually end up picking it up at that. So I think it's timing issue that's actually a causing that's actually causing VCs to end up taking a bit of a long-term view when it comes to making these kind of investments. I think the second part I think we've actually seen, there are still some skeletons in the closet of, of the Indian startup ecosystem that are yet to actually come out. I think recently also we've seen a fairly large prominent investor actually open up a forensic audit of one of his portfolio companies as well, just to understand where a large amount of the money actually went. And what we are seeing is even though deals, even though there are deals in the pipeline that are being actively negotiated by founders, by VCs, by law firms, et cetera, the turnaround time has actually increased by a factor of at least two and a half. So if a deal would actually take about, let's say, two months to close previously, now it would actually take anywhere between six to eight months to end up wrapping up itself. And even some of the deals that have been announced recently also, uh, they've actually taken a much longer time to end up actually to end up actually closing compared to what we had seen previously. So I think these are the these are the India-specific factors that are actually cracking upon it. On a macro situation, I think most of the influence of the of the Russia-Ukraine war has already been baked in. I think there's a greater amount of clarity that 
The U.S. is also stabilizing right now, and their interest rates should not actually end up rising. And there is actually a marked sentiment that the later stage ecosystem should actually end up waking up. Now, one of the dislocations we've actually seen is that later stage firms are, are actually staring at massive holes in their balance sheet as of now. So most of them are extremely reluctant to end up actually taking on new investments. They're actually looking at the existing portfolio, trying to actually get them the profitability, trying to actually plug those particular holes. And most of the follow-on rounds that we're seeing also happen in the form of convertible notes where even the cap on those notes is actually, it's actually at a discount to the last round's valuation itself. So I think people believe they may have overpaid for some of the assets in the previous years. They're looking to rectify that as of now. So when their fund actually do come to an end, they do actually manage to get the IRR, they actually promise to their LPs itself. So I think it's this sort of dislocation is in terms of raising capital for follow-on for their new funds, whereas actually protecting the existing portfolio and making sure to maximize value wherever they can itself. So it's this weird dichotomy that's happening, which is why there's a large amount of dry powder, but very few deals are actually happening in the market. What could be the potential reasons for this trend? Uh, can you give us some reflections there? I would actually prefer to differentiate between accounting markdowns as well as valuation markdowns, wherein a company is actually raised capital at a much lower valuation itself. Now, most of the accounting markdowns that we've seen are actually driven by a combination of the accounting standards that are applied to these various investors, particularly the public market investors or the listed ones who end up actually having to do this far more aggressively than their understated or understated uh, private capital peers. And the second one is actually the risk frameworks that these particular institutional investors end up having. Now, what the accounting standards actually state is that on a quarterly basis, you need to end up marking to market your, uh, your companies. It's like, oh, whatever assets, whatever assets and investments that you've actually made. Now, in the absence of any subsequent financing route and where the divergence between the projected plans of these companies that underpin the valuation report, as well as actual performance is fairly large, what most of their auditors and what most of the risk teams actually insist that these, that these uh, investors end up actually marking down these particular valuations itself. Now, these are temporary dislocations and they actually differ from investor to investor. If you notice, even in India's largest unicorns right now, the markdowns amongst various investors have actually, have actually varied to a large extent. I think there's about a, anywhere between a 20 to 40% difference in their own markdowns itself. And there are several investors who continue to hold these assets on their books at the, at the latest round of funding. So we see these kind of dislocations actually becoming more investor specific for that matter, as opposed to the valuation markdowns where a company is forced to raise capital at a much lower valuation. So I don't think we've seen any downrounds happen as of now. Most of the investors and most of the founders have been fairly smart to structure their investments as a convertible note. Now, to, to 2022, as you saw, last number of convertible rounds, 2023, it's also seeing some number of convertible rounds right now. But I think a price round is in the offing. And when that happens, you'll truly have a barometer of investor sentiment as to whether these companies were actually fairly valued in their previous rounds, or whether the valuation was actually a combination of low interest rates, low interest rates in the previous regime, a large amount of surplus liquidity, as well as investor ebullience that actually carried that entire thing forward itself. So I think we need to differentiate between these two. Obviously, there is a strong signal that's actually being sent when a fairly large investor ends up marking it down. But I think what most of the incoming investors are looking to see is that the largest investors on the cap table are actually marking it down. That's a strong signal. We've actually seen some investors hold anywhere between 1% to 3% end up aggressively marking down these companies. Now, obviously, in their entire portfolio, there would be far larger investments that they've actually made, which end up actually carrying value. So these smaller markdowns are something they don't actually mind tolerating to a large extent. And unfortunately, India ends up actually reading very, very deeply into what is essentially driven by accounting standards as opposed to driven by actual cash coming in. So that differentiation, I think, is important. A larger, larger institution investors also look at a company in terms of its fundamentals, in terms of its sentiment, as well as a larger potential that they have. So I think until we start seeing these sort of 
valuation or investment driven down rounds that's when we actually know that the bottom is actually hit and we will actually we should actually start seeing a recovery from that there out and this recovery will start as arun also mentioned in the early stage itself early stage numbers also still look fairly good still look fairly good when you compare to the later stage peers and it's obviously early stage guys who end up actually raising capital and then thereafter starting off the starting off the next uh, virtuous cycle itself so that what is your outlook on down rounds i think what's what's very important for uh, founders in the unlisted space to also acknowledge is that valuations that your valuation is not a permanent factor of your business if you look at the listed market we've actually seen the valuation changes on a second by second basis for that matter and most of the listed market if you look at the ceos and all that when they end up speaking very few of them actually end up commenting on their stock price unless there's a severe dislocation that can be attributed to their own performance even during covid if you recollect very strong companies very strong short stock that were still actually throwing out for free cash flow and have been doing so for a long time saw the valuations crater by about 60% that was a marked dislocation none of them actually started panicking or doing anything of their life so i think valuations is sort of become a sort of vanity badge for a number of founders and the quicker they end up dissociating dissociating valuation from actual performance for that matter and start actually considering performance i think it's actually a sign of maturity for the entire industry so valuation is great someone valued at a point in time but valuation is always ahead of value creation it's always incumbent on the company to actually grow into that particular valuation and that's why you see in the market the category creators and market leaders in certain areas they're concentrating a lot more on actually on actually cutting down costs and turning profitable because the moment they do and they start showing some amount of sustained profitability they know they can attract the large amount of capital that's actually waiting on the sidelines itself so valuation is great but it's at a point in time it's not going to be fixed up there forever you need to end up doing a lot more in terms of your business to make sure you actually earn that valuation and end up increasing it over time as well thanks adar coming to the regulatory bit one of the major announcements that happened last month was cbdt saying that we are going to announce some changes in angel tax provisions they said some exemptions as well would you like to comment as a member of ibca what are the reactions to those exemptions is the investor community at large happy with them so i think on behalf on as ibca uh, we welcome the fact that the government the cbdt is actually offered clarity on angel tax section 56 to 70 has long been a bugbear on the entire indian sarath ecosystem where we've seen a sort of uh, anti money laundering rule actually becoming a tax harvesting rule when applied selectively to a number of startups itself and i think we've seen a dislocation between a law that was put on the books in 2012 whereas actual startup activity which has been there which has been going on over the past 6 to 7 years there's been a marked divergence as to how the department as well as industry has actually viewed this entire angel tax itself Now the biggest thing I think Jati is India. The reason why angel tax has actually spooked a large number of investors ever since they announced it in the 2020 budget is because close to 80 to 85 percent of the capital coming into the Indian startup ecosystem actually comes from international investors, and most of these actually come into later stage companies. As Arun as Arun has actually put out in in his reports on numerous occasions, the largest rounds that actually happen your later growth stage companies are dominated by foreign capital actually coming in. So if you look at it, 80 to 85 percent actually goes towards foreign capital. About 10 to 12 percent actually comes from domestic AIFs and venture capital funds, private equity funds, uh, uh, etc., such as ourselves uh, as well. And the remaining portion actually comes from family offices, CXOs, and smaller and smaller corporate investors. Now, because because of the fact that 80 percent of the capital actually came from overseas, angel tax was predominantly predominantly focused at early stage companies because the the later stage guys raised foreign money were actually exempt. Now that even the foreign capital is actually coming into the ambit, it did actually cause a severe dislocation when it came to the when it came to the uh, funding market and actually exacerbated the entire funding winter itself. Now, even with the latest the latest safe harbor rules that CBDT has actually put out, 
One alarming point to note is that the source, the largest sources of FEI into the country have actually been omitted. If you look at the RBI annual report, and this case came out on May 30th itself, as well as the previous year for that matter, the five largest sources of FDI into India in, in some orders, actually Singapore, followed by Mauritius, followed by the US, followed by Cayman, and then either Netherlands or Switzerland, depending on which year you end up looking at. But if you actually look at already top five, Singapore, Mauritius, Cayman, and then Netherlands are actually excluded. Even the UAE, which has actually been extremely bullish on India, and we've seen a large amount of not just sovereign wealth funds, as well as private capital actually come in, have actually been excluded from this. Now, even though the government has stated that if you're a sovereign wealth fund, if you're a bank, if you're an insurance company, if you're a university endowment and the like, you're actually exempt if you come from these kind of countries. The exclusion of Singapore, Mauritius, Cayman, et cetera, has actually caused flutters around. Singapore has long established itself as, um, uh, as a preferred, uh, preferred investment destination for investments into Southeast Asia. And we're only now actually seeing India-dedicated funds from larger foreign institutional investors end up getting created. Otherwise, India was usually part of their Southeast Asia strategy, which would normally be run out of Singapore itself. Now, given the fact that these particular countries have actually been put on the negative list as of now, as they're not part of the safe harbor provisions, a large amount of investor concern still remains that in case they do actually invest into any of these startups, or not just startups, but even other unlisted companies for that matter, there's a good chance that 25% of the investment may end up getting paid as tax into the hands of the tax man itself. Now, the biggest problem with angel tax hasn't actually been the valuation methods that have actually been around. In the bad act of the Income Tax Act itself, it's stated that the valuation has to be done to the satisfaction of the assessing officer. And what we've often seen, even when a few of our portfolio companies actually face angel tax issues and were thankfully able to get out of them over time, is that uh, the assessing office would actually compare your actual performance to the projections that you put into your valuation report. And the moment the divergence was fairly large, they would disregard your valuation report and actually tax the entire share capital premium as income in the hands of the companies itself. India is unique as a country, but in the actually tax capital investments as income. No other country, I think, in the world actually has this particular piece itself. So the entire industry as a whole has raised its concerns with CBDT, raised its concerns with the government, to say that, look, you have actually, you do have a safe harbor list, but what are the reasons why these particular countries have been exempt? These are the legitimate kind of investors who arise from this. If there are certain bad actors that you believe are there, how can we actually work with you to ensure that if there are good actors who actually come in, they can actually come in under the safe harbor rules and that there enough, there's enough disclosure and transparency built in such that any errant actors trying to come in can't take advantage of the system itself. So the entire industry, no one from the industry is actually countering that it is important for India to actually to actually stem the flow of black money actually being laundered through these kind of investments. This has happened in the past, and there was a reason why this law actually came onto the books. But the misapplication of the law is something that all of us are actually against. And even the government is actually taking cognizance of that. Those discussions are actually going on right now. And we are hopeful that we should see some sort of clarity actually coming out sometime soon as well. Thanks, Arun and Siddharth, for your valuable insights. That's all for today's edition. Stay tuned for more exciting episodes of State of Economy podcast.